Hello and welcome to Open Door Films. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Fountain, a podcasting app that lets you earn Bitcoin while you listen to your favorite creators. It's no fucking joke. You basically are making money from listening to the very artists you admire already. And in addition to that, you can basically stream them Satoshis as a way of supporting them, hence following the value for value model that Adam Curry, the podfather himself, came up with. And if you want to know more about Adam Curry, check out his podcast, No Agenda. It's fucking awesome. Another thing that's fucking awesome is Anchor, the second sponsor of this podcast, which allows you to create your own podcast for those of you who are creative bugs and eager to get your voice out there. Now, it can be a daunting thing because there are a lot of podcasting platforms out there, and you probably think you got to publish on each one individually if you record yourself. Well, Anchor eliminates that because just by a click of a button or a click of a link, you can able, you can sign up, set up your podcast, and within minutes, Anchor will distribute it across all the platforms out there. Apple, Spotify, Lisbon, Curiocaster, Podfreeze, and Fountain, which is a personal favorite of mine since, hey, I'm making money for listening to my favorite creators. Anyway, I want to talk about my guest today, Koji Steven Sakai. He's a writer, director, producer, as well as a film professor who teaches screenwriting in places like UCLA and the New York Film Academy stationed in California. I really enjoyed my discussion with Koji because we talked most, I mean, we did talk a lot about film and the current culture of film in regards to streaming, the importance of physically owning films given the the access they can give us as opposed to what a streaming service can provide because even though streaming even if you're going to rent a movie with streaming there are some films out there you just can't find and i even mentioned a few of them in our discussion as did he also we talked we also just talked about the tentpole film and how that itself is becoming a model within cinema culture and how where that can go I mean, we did talk about a lot of things, and I really enjoyed my discussions with him regarding screenwriting, because I myself am a screenwriter, and what I loved about it was how he illustrated the importance of why the first 10 pages are the most critical. There were some things I disagreed with him, but you know what? I disagree with a lot of tactics in screenwriting. I mean, I love screenwriting books, but I do find that there's a bit of intellectual arrogance with some gurus out there, not naming any names or going after any people. Anyway, I hope you all enjoy this episode of Open Door Films. Check out the Bitcoin buying links I've left down below, as well as the sponsors of this podcast. Check out Koji's films, as well as the links to his profile, because he is a very intelligent human being, a very humble lover of cinema. And again, I really enjoyed my discussion with Koji, and I hope you all as well. Till next time. Okay, Koji, I've already, I mean, as we've discussed, uh, I'm glad you're here. And uh, I guess the reason I reached out to you was because I was fascinated, not just with your work in film, independent film, but also just your teaching background. And I guess we could start from there because that's what fascinated me about film and teaching and the teaching profession. Yeah. Um, you know, I love, I love writing films. Um, I love writing in general. And, you know, I love, the only thing I love more as much as, writing is actually teaching people how to write. So I, right now I teach at UCLA Extension. I used to teach at Chapman University. I teach at New York Film Academy and, and hopefully other places as well in the future. That's interesting. I went to New York Film Academy around 2013. Were you there at the time? No, 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 I, um, not there. And I went, uh, I, went, I went to Burbank. Which campus did you go to? Oh, the one in Soho, New York. Okay, yeah, that was way, I was in the one in Burbank here next to the Warner Brothers Center. And what kind of film studies do you currently engage in? Do you teach film theory or? or no, any- I, I, I teach screenwriting. 
Oh, um, just screenwriting and just writing. Yeah, everywhere I go, I just teach writing only. And as an independent filmmaker, what do you can you tell me more about the films you've made so far? Yeah, definitely. Um, I just shot a movie with uh, Riza the, from the Wu Tang. He was the executive producer. Um, before that, I shot a movie with uh, with Terrence Howard and Cuba Gooding Jr. called Skeletons in the Closet. Um, earlier this year, I had a movie that came out called Commando with Mickey Rourke and Michael Jai White. Um, other than that, I think I've my last count. I think I made ten feature films that have been produced and distributed. Um, you know, and I'm I'm constantly writing and constantly producing stuff. You know. So I'm lucky to have done what I've done so far and can't wait to do more. And they're primarily independent films? Well, you know, like the, the thing about today, today's world is that, you know, the, the line between independent and kind of studio has been very blurred. Studios only make kind of these huge, huge films now. So franchise, you know, basically. yeah, they make franchise, yeah, tentpole films. And so, you know, everything else other than that is now considered independent. So yeah, I, I definitely make mostly independent movies. I've worked with the studios before though, and I've, I've sold stuff to the studios. Can I ask you what are your thoughts on on this whole mod, on this whole model? How nowadays major studios are only investing their time and money in in big budget franchise films or tentpole films? Because I actually had a discussion with another filmmaker about this a few weeks ago, and how top the we were we were focused mainly on the top the latest Top Gun film and how that in itself could reform the structure of how f- films that are not superhero based into a more like an, an event rather than just simply a cinematic experience. I mean, more like a cinematic event outside of the film overall. And yeah. I'm curious, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, as, as a creative person, I'd love to see a little bit more creativity out of the studios. But uh, with that being said, it's also, uh, my producer hat tells me, this is, this is a business. This is about making money, you know? And, and the, you know, the more you could limit the risk and make money, the better. So those that's why everyone sees Temple. That's why I go see every Marvel movie in the theaters because it makes a lot of money. All the kids' movies I see with my kid, you know, those are the things that I do. Um, I, I do think that there. I, I do think that only way the movie industry can continue to survive theatrically is to kind of make it more of a experience, like you're saying. You know, on the same way in the same way that malls can't exist unless they're more about the experience of going to malls and doing things there as opposed to shopping at Gap or wherever because now you can shop you can buy everything you want at amazon whereas before literally it was the only place you could buy the stuff you needed to get you can make the same case with the streaming services because even though you could say those have kind of i mean in a way they've kind of worked against and kind of helped independent films because i mean take for instance the types of independent films you find on amazon as opposed to netflix I mean, there are plenty of uh, independent films on Amazon that you wouldn't regularly see on a platform like Netflix, which is one of the very first streaming services, if not the first one overall. But you rarely see independent films being released in the theaters. And then unless you go to a specific type of theater, I mean, I'm based out of Florida. There's a there's an independent film theater I know about called Gateway on Sunrise and it shows very. It shows the a lot of independent films and even old classic independent films from time to time. But I wonder how long even that will last. And uh, I guess what I'm, what I'm getting at is the streaming service kind of works as both a double-edged sword against the independent film. I mean, it, do you think it could work? It, it could compete against the tentpole film. Well, yeah. There's the good. There's good and bad about the streaming services, right? The good is that 
you could get distribution. When I was started this industry, that was the hardest thing to do is get distribution, right? To go get somewhere where people actually could see your movie. Now you can see your movie a lot of different places, but the challenge for as a filmmaker, especially an independent filmmaker, is the how do you how do you get recouped? How do you repay? How do you get payment? How do you make money on your films? Uh, they're paying a lot less because there's a lot more opportunity to like everyone can make a movie. Everyone with an iPhone can make a movie, right? Uh, so that's the challenge in terms of theatrical. You know, I, I think that there's just some films that are, won't be theatrical. I know a lot of filmmakers are, are have their hearts set on theatrical, but I tell you know when I'm producing a film and not writing it, I, I tell people all the time, if we're on Netflix, we're going to get a lot more eyes on that film than we are if it's going to be in a theater somewhere in a limited in a limited. Oh, so right. that's what you meant by theatrical, simply focused on the theater rather than in terms of style, because. You can look at a lot of independent films that are small scale, but they still have an element of theatricality to them. No, no, definitely. No, no, no. Uh, they definitely have a theatricality. I, I'm just talking strictly like the business side of being mm. in the theaters and, and, and making, you know, and, and trying to hope to have it at the AMC or a wherever, wherever people are watching movies nowadays. And uh, uh, so does that make you more optimistic or pessimistic? I, I don't think it makes me either. Um, it just changes, you know, um, I, I do think that the movie industry is, is going to need to change in terms of, of making sure that we're, we're still being able to, you know, like people want to watch movies, people can watch movies and they'll be able to see it. Um, I, I think that's the most important thing to me. Um, you know, like the, one of the challenges with the music industry, for example, is that they, they went through this whole thing that was much harder than the music, uh, movie industry where no one was buying CDs. Right. And then they didn't know how to make money for a really long time. And they had to learn how to make it. And I think the movies have been able to do that a lot more smoothly and still, still make, make some money. Do they still make CDs? <laughs> no, no. Like, I'm, you know, before, like, they couldn't, yeah. they couldn't figure out how to make money. If they can't sell CDs, how do we make money? Right. Um, yeah, I know. But it's just that it still surprises me that many other platforms, like, take, for instance, Barnes and Noble. It's not just the fact that that people can buy books on Amazon, even used books for dirt cheap prices. That, I mean, that it still surprises me that bookstores like that still exist. And, <laughs> and I'm not just talking about the social convention of meeting your friends for coffee because Starbucks, I mean, even the Starbucks privileges there are limited. But yeah. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to a Barnes and Noble and seen the DVD and Blu-ray collection and how obsess absurdly expensive they are, even by <laughs> basic even by basic standards. I mean, would you pay $30 for a DVD 20, five years ago? Of course not. Yeah. But, and you can't count on that. They can't count on that keeping them afloat. And I'm, I'm just, I'm a little surprised myself about how Barnes and Noble is st still around. Yeah. I, I don't know how they're around. Although next to my house, near my house, a block away, there's a DVD rental store still, which is one of the few ones in LA still, but what? it's, uh, but it's really amazing that I can rent movies there because, uh, you know, there's been a countless times where I've had to watch a movie and I can't find a single, I can't find it online at all. There's no mm -hmm. streaming. I can't rent it. I can't buy it. And then the only place I could go is to the DVD rental store and go rent it and put it in my, um, my DVD player at home. So yeah, there's still value. And a lot of times in the other value of that store is a lot of times I'm, I'm writing a movie and say, I have to, I want to watch movies in the genre or the kind of movie I could just talk to the guy behind the counter. And they know a lot. And I'm like, hey, I'm doing this movie about sharks. What kind of movie do you think? I, and then like they could list like 50 movies and I can rent them all right there. So you that's been really, really nice. You basically have access to your own portable Quentin Tarantino. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and they know a lot more than me. So it's awesome. And they have it all there. And they have a lot of obscure movies, foreign movies. Um, 
in ways that I can't, I can't get online. So I, I think there's still value. It's just really hard. I, every time I take my son to the DVD store, I'm always like, look around, this won't exist in 10 years. <laughs> this is, yeah. this is the last one. <laughs> I can totally agree. Cause I still buy Blu-rays from time to time. And it's been a while since I bought any, but I understand that the sentiment and even the value that, because there are some movies you just won't have access to and renting it as opposed to buying it, even on a streaming service, they're at the same price, at least with physically owning it, it'll have a much more lasting impact. Plus, yeah. uh, what you you did mention that some I'm surprised that you came. There are some films you can find on streaming services. One I've been trying to look for, and the only way I could access it without pa- paying an, an absurd price is by buying it on VHS, and nobody has a VHS anymore. <laughs> yeah. And the one I'm regarding is missing with Jack Lemon. Oh wow, you can't find that online. It's not on any streaming service. You can't even rent it on Amazon Prime. You have to, per- and if you purchase the DVD, well, I mean, you could probably purchase the Criterion, but, and I guess that's it. I didn't even know. I, 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 I haven't subscribed to Google Criterion yet, so maybe I'll just stream it for there. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's, there's a lot of movies that, that kind of go out and no one ever sees it or no one can see it again. So yeah, there, there is value there. It's just, it's just a, such a weird business model. What types of genres do you usually write in? Um, you know, I, I t- most of my career, I've written about 20 years. Most of my career, I've been paid to write horror movies. Mm. Um, but kind of recently and kind of uh, over the course of like the last 10, I've, I've written a lot of different, across a lot of genres. However, what's really popular now is the action genre. And so I've been writing a lot of action movies. I think uh, most of the movies I've been shooting recently have been either action or horror at this point. And the reason action is really successful in terms of, uh, or a lot of people are making it is that it's the only genre that could cross, uh, cross countries, cross cultures, right? So if, for example, if we take a look at Taken, Taken is a movie about a father who doesn't want their daughter sold into sex slavery. Well, mm-hmm. everyone, no matter where you are, understands that you don't want your daughter sold into sex slavery, right? You could be in Dubai, you could be in Africa, you could be in Asia, you could be anywhere, you could be in North America and get that. Whereas um, comedy is often culturally specific, right? Drama is sometimes culturally specific. Horror, believe it or not, is culturally specific as well. So the only thing that's not is action, right? I mean, for like, I, I noticed what you did with horror, you know, like what's scary to Asian people is not necessarily what's scary to Western people and vice versa. Like uh, they have a very different sensibility. Like in Japan, for example, horror is much more place-based and less like ghost and, you know, demons and that kind place of thing. Based. Um, what? place faced what do you mean by that like like it's like the it's like uh the like the actual location of it and they and the like the location of the house the the type of ghosts that are in those mm. houses is different than the american one um americans for example so a lot of times they are culturally specific. like i have a lot of uh japanese friends who look at american horror movies and they're like this is not scary you know that's why a lot of like uh westerners when they look at some asian horror they're like I mean, other than like the Ringu or those kinds of movies, they look at those and they're like, this is not, you know, like what the hell's happening? It's really boring. Let me ask you, since you mentioned Japanese culture, because I've I've been a fan of anime for a very long time. And I think that anime just showcases, I mean, I don't know. Are you a fan of anime? Uh, No, I've watched it, but I'm not a huge fan. Well, there are certain elements of horror and some are very simple. I mean, I don't, know if you've heard the the gag or the if it's a meme it's called the rape face it's basically like something that any anime can can have where the character just smiles in this malicious way where the camera isn't 
isn't focusing on their eyes. In fact, their eyes are out of, out of frame, but you see their mouth and it just has this malicious glare that is so terrifying that it almost embodies some <laughs> demonic essence. And I, man, just that you mentioned action horror. I do want to discuss a bunch of those topics, but because the last person I spoke with, we spoke mostly about his work in horror, but uh, when it comes to action itself, what do you feel about the action genre? And it's kind of, it's not just making a, well, I don't know if, if, if it was ever, if it ever needed to make a comeback, but it's kind of being re, reactualized in a new way where it's becoming more sophisticated, not just more sophisticated, but there's a poetry to it that a lot of, dire- I think a lot of directors, particularly Christopher Nolan, were afraid of because of its dance-like quality. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think now that there, there are much more action movies being made now that now they're trying to figure out how do we do, how do we tell stories differently? How do we shoot it differently? How do we create characters that are more three-dimensional? I mean, one of the, one of the hallmarks of a traditional action movie is that the characters tend to be two, two-dimensional, right? They tend to be easier to understand because we want to focus on the, the action, right? But mm-hmm. now you're finding that there are a lot more of the action movies are being more complicated, that they're the stories are a little bit, um, are lo- there's a little bit more to the story. There's a little bit more to the, the physicality of the action that's actually happening. So I, I think that there's been a lot of changes. And, you know, uh, a lot of the streaming platforms, the fact that those are some of the most popular things that are being streamed on there, they're looking for that content. That's why there are a lot more of it being made now. Are there any particular action films that they make you, th- that make you think strengthen this argument? Um... That's that's a good that's a good follow up question. Uh, <laughs> off the top of my head, I can't think of I can't think of one that that comes to mind. But give me some time; I'll think about it as as we talk. Well, I've discussed this with other filmmakers in this podcast, and I always point back to the John Wick movies because even there, oh, there you go. I don't necessarily well, I, they are clearly action films, but mm-hmm. I think they have to be marketed purely as action films to get the attention they do. But I think that they're much more much deeper, more intellectually introspective films about a man who suffers from a death drive and who is on an existential quest to discover a purpose for his own, to why he should continue existing. And that's why I like, I like all of them. They just use the action as a good storytelling method and even as a good character building method, because one thing you can never accuse those films of is, is exposition. Very right. I mean, another Keanu Reeves movie, The Matrix, is a good example. It's it's a very first one. It's incredibly deep movie, right? It's one of the deepest movies about existence and about who you know who we really are and reality and stuff. The irony is that I watched it this year, and I feel that that film was more ahead of its time than it, it would have ever realized. Because I've brought up the idea of the simulation with with uh, the guests and just reapproached it from the framework that. Uh, well, we always go to the stereotype that it's the brain in the jar theory, but I look at the simulation as just the idea of a narrative and how it can be weaved in a multitude of ways. I mean, in these past three years, I think that's been a perfect example of all the craziness that's happened and all the narratives we've been sold or un- or been put in a position to look at in a different framework because any narrative can be spun in a certain way where it works as a tool of manipulation. And that's what the na- matrix, the, sh- the movie tackles in a sense. Yeah. These individuals who are more self-aware while the rest are just simply are just simply in a state of sleep. Yeah. I mean, we've been talking, I mean, humanity has been talking about this forever. I mean, Plato's cave, right? The biggest thing mm-hmm. in Plato's cave was that he said that um, the philosopher king is the only one that's looking at the, uh, wait, let me take a step back. So he said that there's a fire 
and a person in front of the fire is putting stuff in front of the fire and it's projecting shadows onto the wall. And most of humanity looks at the shadows on the wall and call it reality, but it's the philosopher king that is looking at the object for real and what, what's really what's really being, I mean, the, not the projection, but the actual thing. And so I think that, um, you know, that's very similar to kind of what we're talking about. Um, for me, like in terms of, if, if we look at like, are we a simulation or not? I look at the Fibonacci number and just think about how everything comes down to that, to the, kind of these simple formulas. And if we were to create a game of, human, of, of our existence, we, it would come down to numbers. It would just be, we'd just be numbers. And so when I, when I think about, are we a simulation? I think, yeah, I mean, that, that's one of the best uh, examples or, or, um, or reasons why we could be a part of a simulation. Yeah, I mean, you can't prove or disprove it. It's kind of yeah. like, it's kind of like the idea of the afterlife. The only way you can test it, there's only one way you can really test it. And you, there's no guarantee you're going to get your, you're going to have the perception of the results because chances yeah. are either something happens or something doesn't happen after you die. Yeah. And if we, if we go back to Plato's analogy, um, the person who looks at the, looks at the object and calls the object re uh, reality, he gets killed. So that's what usually ends up happening to those people. The philosopher kings is what he called them. Mm, very interesting. And yeah. strangely enough, this idea has this idea has actually helped helped me gravitate towards the idea that the John Wick movies might. There was a time where maybe on some level, I still think that they might be spinoffs to the Matrix. That they're secretly Matrix movies that I would much rather prefer as opposed to the sequels because. <laughs> Because for one, I could believe the idea that it's just a new simulation, like a form of like, because the Matrix obviously incorporates multiple religious ideologies, including Christianity and Buddhism in there and Buddhism, or maybe is Hinduism that discusses reincarnation. So Buddhism does too. both of them do. Well, in either case, the idea of reincarnation could be very well incorporated to Keanu Reeves's character in John Wick, like his character in the Matrix. Yeah. They're just living a new simulation. And as the John Wick movies have become more self-aware about kind of the, kind of the, they have a meta quality to them in terms of the action yeah. from time to time, but where they call out the ridiculousness of it, but there's also some exaggeration with elements of it that you feel it might be a simulation. And I guess the third one was the one that made me think about this the most. That's it, interesting. It It's hard, but hell, I'd rather, I don't know how you feel about the Matrix sequels any of them i've only seen the first one i think that's the only one that needed to i think it's sequel proof yeah the, the other the sequels the original i haven't seen the newest sequel but the other two sequels are highly disappointing movies so i, I if you want to keep if you want to preserve the sanctity of the matrix then i'd just watch i'd focus on the first one and stop watching the rest of them it's ironic though that the first, the recent one i heard was rel did relatively well as opposed to the sequels and i even heard from someone that it actually calls self-awareness to the absurdity of it its existence oh, interesting yeah I haven't, I haven't seen it because i was so disappointed by the other two i didn't watch the new one <laughs> i just i've when it comes to sequels that especially ones that come out after 20 years i'm very skeptical i mean i make rare exceptions like blade runner 2049 which is not just a good example of a sequel of a good sequel but a sequel that surpasses the original and its ability to expand on prior material that was present within the original and that leads me to ask you have you ever worked on anything science fiction based um actually uh i think the closest the closest thing i have is this new my newest movie with the rizza it's called uh nyctophobia but it's it's a horror nyctophobia. Slash, it's horror slash science fiction movie but it's, it's more horror than science fiction but but there is a kind of a science fiction element to it 
It's interesting you you mix up the horror and science fiction idea because when you you as you mentioned earlier, horror can be perceived differently based on the cultural context. And I think it can even be perceived on a more individuated level because each of us has something that irks that gets at our skin more than some someone else it does. I mean, one pro- perfect, I mean a perfect example of this is like a, a sci-fi film I tried watching, I couldn't, High Life with Robert Pattinson and I don't know if you've seen it. I've seen it. There is a scene in the film where that is too horrifying even for myself to watch. And I, when I, one of the guests I in, I interviewed when I told her about it, and she got excited by about the idea of the film. I told I had to ask her, "Have you eaten anything?" Because there is one scene in there that can't be unwatched. After you watch <laughs> it, the rest of the movie, like uh, there, I'm sure you've seen a lot of horrific scenes in horror films, but yeah. if you watch that. That probably didn't affect you, but if you watch that particular scene, after that, the disturbance you feel you you were probably numb to in those other scenes starts to irk at you even further. That's how disturbing I found the film. And uh, but it was a science fiction film asking a lot of deep intellectual questions, but the kinds that are also terrifying. And do you think that's why horror, in many ways, is making a comeback, where it's not necessarily going for the traditional approach so much as tackling much more simplistic things that we never questioned no yeah horror horror's never gone away but i think the number one thing about horror movies and kind of business-wise less story-wise but business-wise is that these are the one of some of the few movies that you can make in that one to five million dollar range mm-hmm. and still and still make a lot of money um you know you can't make like for example you can't make a romantic comedy for one million dollars and think that it's going to be like it's going to make a lot of money uh, because nobody's going to watch it because it doesn't have a star. Yeah. But you could make a two million dollar feature or a two million dollar feature horror movie, and and it blows up and makes you know makes everybody a ton of money and it's got, it's really successful. And because of that, there's a lot more creativity in that space because now you're thinking how instead of how can I make money on this project on this horror film, how can I make a good horror that's scary and interesting and doesn't depend on having you know, um, a famous actor to be in the movie in order to make it successful or possible, you know, and I think that's one of the reasons why that, that those stories are doing really well. I think, I think it certainly has to be original because my personal thought on why horror is kind of, oh, well, I hope I, my, the statement I made wasn't misconstrued because I don't think it was going away so much as for a long time, it wasn't that well respected for in America. And I think it had to do with the fact that it was kind of smeared by the repetitive use of so many tropes that we just got exhausted by the one-dimensional protagonist jump scares, the secret past he did all of a sudden remembers, I mean, or the yeah. hidden secrets of his past we didn't know about. I mean, there are some films that still use that, but to a much better degree. And I guess that's why horror just had such a bad reputation that but when it comes to romantic comedies itself, I haven't seen any successful romantic comedies in a long time. And what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I secretly love romantic comedies. Um, I, I, I spend, if I could watch romantic comedies more, I would. It's just, uh, there's not a lot. Um, I have seen, I mean, uh, there's the, uh, the Lost City on Amazon that I, re- I recently saw with uh, Sandra Bullock and... Uh, Channing Tatum? Yeah, Channing Tatum. That's, you know, like, but that's kind of an action, action romantic comedy. But at the heart of that movie, it's a romantic comedy. I mean, all the major points, uh, plot points of the story are, are romantic comedy, not action. But they do a really good job of being, you know, kind of being able to marry that. I mean, my son, for example, who's 10, does not want to watch a romantic comedy with me. 
Um, and he, him and I watched that movie together because there's enough action for him to be interested and for me to watch it and be like, this is good. And also without, you know, a lot of sex and a lot of crazy stuff that a 10 year old can't see, but enough to like. And if it keeps him away from TikTok, he's good. Because <laughs> that's another yeah, thing that yeah. bothers me now where social media platforms have exploded to the point where they just take away our attention that I think that's the reason studios have become less optimistic about uh, more independently oriented projects because uh, I mean technology, yeah, it's been innovative and it's helped and it's helped expand our society, but our attention spans have just gone way down. Where the idea, to me, it's a mystery that even one a person spends one hour a day on Twitter or another social media platform focusing on an issue that isn't is either irrelevant or just takes up so much energy that it's not worth it. Yeah, I mean. Uh, the average, the average viewer, the, the average viewer watches four and a half minute video is like on, on YouTube is the number one platform for, for young folks. Um, you know, I, I, I disagree about the studios. I mean, the studio it's, it's purely business. If you're going to spend a billion dollars on a project, you just got to make sure that you can make that money back. And so the only way you can make sure to make the money back is what can you make that will have the most people watch it, you know, um, and usually it's like Marvel, right? It's like a Avengers movie or whatever. Mm. Um, and I, I just purely, I mean, like I, w- I wish it was something deeper than that, but most of those people, most of the executives and most of the people are risk averse and they're not willing to take a risk on projects that they can't, they can't guarantee that they're gonna make their money back because they're gonna be fired, they're human. Um, so unfortunately that that's the case. That's why, but that's why now there's a, there's a robust, you know, film world where in that in that one to 15 million dollar range where people are making like these 10 million dollar movies and it's not the studios anymore but it's these it's these other companies that are making those movies i can i believe you when you say that they're risk averse but it seems like they're willing to take even less risks and continue to go during down that trajectory because remember in 2019 martin scorsese's the Irishman was released on well it was limited it had a limited theatrical release which is bizarre for a scorsese picture as opposed to being streamed on Netflix. And even the fact that it was in the genre he operates best in. Yeah. Well, you know, like that's just, I, I think the, the movie watching view, the viewer is less likely to go to, you know, the theaters for certain types of movies too, right? Like a three hour movie is not the kind of movie that people want to see on, you know, in the theater. Like, for example, I have, you know, I'm, I'm mid forties. I have a super short attention span. I remember seeing um, Lord of the Rings and having to get up and walk around for a while and then coming back into the theater. Cause I just, I just can't sit through like a three hour movie. I can't, I don't even write three hour movies. I've never even written past 120 pages. Uh, so I couldn't even imagine sitting through like a super, super long movie. You know, I, for the most part, the only movies I want to see in a theater are, are horror movies um because of the scares like it's it's scarier to be with other people and then um and big action movies like you know the the tentpole marvel kind of stuff otherwise like i'd prefer to watch on my phone or my own my own house you know it's just my tv's better quality i don't have to deal with people talking i can pause it and do something else right i mean it's kind of like football like for most part i'd rather watch football at home because i get the angles i get the reviews i could you know i don't have to deal with crazy people fighting near me um, a lot of times, a lot of times it's just easier to be at home and, and movies are just like, that's why to your earlier point, I do think that's why we have to make movies much more of like an experience, right. And less like, like you go out there and it's like this whole thing, as opposed to something that, you know, like the way we used to watch movies when, when I was a kid. 
Do you think that the experience, the experiential quality of that does kind of help mature or settle the audience? Because as you mentioned, the fact that you're worried about people talking in a movie theater or as a, or even a sports game fighting, it seems like when you have these tentpole events, they just simply show some measure of respect that you don't, wouldn't see them uh, exemplify in a more casual film. Yeah. Yeah. I, there's, there's definitely that. I mean, you, you go to, that's why I like festivals are dying in general. Right. Because like people don't want to go see these movies, you know, like I had, uh, I went to, I recently went to a short program where a short I wrote was in it. And it's the first time I sat through something for like that long in a while where I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know, what, like, I didn't know the movie that was happening. And, and it was kind of a, a weird experience for me and different in the way that like, it, it was more reminiscent of the way I used to watch movies and not the way I watch movies now. Cause on Netflix, I could just keep changing stuff till I find something I want, you know, Hulu. And then I go to Hulu, then I go to Amazon, then I go to HBO max and Disney plus and shutter. And like, I, there's so many options now that, that things are just so much so different. You know, I, the way I teach, for example, the way I teach writing is also different. Um, before I taught a lot about, you know, um, like the first five pages were important for the reader, right? If the first five pages an exciting incident. Yeah, they're not like it's not interesting. They're gonna stop reading. Um, but now I include if the first five minutes of your movie is not interesting, then they're gonna turn it off and watch something else on Netflix, or they're gonna turn it off and watch something else on some other place. And so you do have to have like an interesting five minutes because then you're gonna get that audience. Because I know how it is. I've watched five minutes of movement. This is terrible. I don't want to watch this, and I move on to the next thing. You know. Mm. Do you often do you worry about the anxiety of having too much access? Because with prior filmmakers I've discussed, we've talked about how having a, this as great as it is to have all these options in terms of streaming platforms or even the idea of, of have or the idea of Kindle itself. Yeah, it does give you a lot of access, but don't do you ever feel like a sense of anxiety from having too much optionality? No, you know, one of the things I was told by a really successful novelist and, and I could take it to heart about my work and I tell this to my students as well is that the success of your project has almost very little to do with you. It's more about things that are completely out of your hand, out of your, out of your control. So, you know, for example, like you could write an amazing book that hits on 9-11. And so no one reads it because it's 9-11, right? Um, you could also have a really crappy book that is really terrible and this plot and it's written bad and everything's bad. And for some reason it hits the, you know, zeitgeist at the right time and you become wildly successful. Yeah. So like I, I, like, Twilight, you know, like, yeah. Twilight, I was going to say Twilight because <laughs> she's a terrible writer and the books are terrible. I read the books. Um, but, you know, like, like I, I, so the same thing about, you know, having op people having options. It's like, if the movie, if the movie is going to hit, it's going to hit and it has nothing to do with anything I could control. Or if the movie doesn't hit, it's nothing to do with, you know, like it could be on Netflix and I could do nothing or, or it could be on Netflix and uh, suddenly like, you know, um, you know, like, um, Stephen Colbert is talking about it all of a sudden, right? Like those are two totally different things. I have no experience because or I have no power or control over. So I don't, I try not to spend my time worrying about it, you know, cause you just never know. That explains Christopher Nolan's success with the dark Knight because I doubt he expected the dark Knight to have the explosion that it did because I see the dark Knight in both a positive and negative level on a positive level. It's considered this crime classic, that's near that has almost like the sophisticated reputation of the god the way the godfather did when it came out and yet the negative side is that every comic book film has tried to replicate that so much that it's kind of added to the potential burnout comic book films might experience 
if they continue using the same formula and releasing them at a at and uh, uh, at the pace they've been releasing them. Yeah, no, and but you know, also the Dark Knight was based on a, a beloved graphic novel series, right? That that if you grew up there in that time, that was the most important graphic novel that came out, and so that that yeah, was part of also a love for it. It certainly took influence from some of the most classic Batman comics. So, as I mean, part of that, hey, Frank Miller, yeah, that Frank Miller graphic novel, Dark Knight is the Jeff Loeb. Jeff Loeb's The Long Halloween. Alan yeah. Moore's The Killing Joke. Yeah, and it's it was heavily influenced by Michael Mann's Heat. And yeah, I don't know. It's it's very interesting that we bring up Heat because uh, I don't know if you're if you're aware that Michael Mann just had published a book along with some other writer, Heat Two, which is like a prequel to the. Really? Heat. Oh, I didn't know that. I don't know. I'm, I mean, I'm certainly curious because one of the podcasts I wa- listen to, the rewatchables with uh, Bill Simmons, they constantly bring up Heat, almost parodying it because they do like making fun of Al Pacino's overacting in some moments. But yeah, but yeah, I guess you can't really control it. I mean, who knows what Oppenheimer, Nolan's Oppenheimer, will be like, especially in a time now where two countries are warring you and the idea of nuclear annihilation is being put to the subject again so who knows what kind of conversation that'll bring up yeah yeah you just i mean that even even with the studios who have literally half a billion dollars in marketing they can't control ultimately what happens because not every disney movie for example is successful right not every marvel movie is super successful so it it, even even them like and even they have no control and that's kind of what makes filmmaking really exciting is that you just never know right you can make a movie and that it could be like wildly successful and your career is set for the rest of your life. You could also make a movie no one watches and then you just continue doing what you do. You know, that's the other thing that I tell my students and, and I tell when I'm interviewed, I always like to explain that there's like, everyone thinks that there's two options for writers, right? There's two options for writers or directors or actors. There's like the, I'm wildly successful like Tom Cruise as an actor or I'm, I'm waiting tables, right? I'm super poor and I'm waiting tables where there's actually a, you know, middle class of actors who have, you know, regular roles, who make good money, who could buy a house and live normal, or writers like myself, who we're not, I'm not Charlie Kaufman, clearly, but I'm also not, you know, working at McDonald's. I'm, you know, I, I get enough gigs and I make enough movies to, to have a living and have a house and have a kid. And, you know, um, and, and I think that the more we express that, you know, filmmaking and writing and acting and directing, these are all just regular jobs and that there is a middle class of, of, creatives that continue to keep you know amazon with all the movies or netflix with other movies you know we're we're the ones that are doing those things Mm. that's interesting and i guess what i want to ask what do you think about screenwriting competitions and screenwriting platforms overall because do you think that i personally always thought there was an absurdity to having to pay to publish your script on a website as opposed to taking more decentralized approach because Obviously, not all screenwriters are filmmakers. Yeah. And there, I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with Substack, but I actually thought of this idea of publishing some of my short film scripts on Substack because, one, you own the content. It can't be censored. It can't be taken down as opposed to putting it on the blacklist or some platform where you ha- or some competition submission, which kind of is, uh, is absurd. You're paying an absurd amount of money for an unlikely chance that your script will be noticed. Yeah. Um, you know, the thing about screenwriting contests, like my first screenwriting contest, I won't name the contest, but the one, the first, the first one I won 
was uh, I was told at the, you know, the closing ceremony or whatever, the award ceremony that the head of the program, the head of the contest read my script, loved it and put it in the final round. And, you know, my first impression was like, really, that's how it works. You know, um, I was super happy because it was my first kind of screenwriting, good, positive thing. But, um, but with that being said, I'm also now a reader. I've read for a couple of different contests. Um, and so now I feel like I know how it feels on the other side. Contests are, are what they are. You know, if you go in thinking that your, your script is, is amazing and you're going to win and it's going to make your career, that's probably not the thing to do, right? It's just going to lead to disappointment. Uh, but you just never know. So like there are certain contests that I think are valid that are interesting that to do um, and, and are worth it in terms of like, if you could do anything in it, then you'll probably be able to make a successful career. With that being said, also I've had, I've had scripts that have won a competition and then go in the next competition and not even get past the first round, right? So it's all about readers like me who are reading your scripts and deciding whether it's something that, that is, is good. And it's all based on so many different factors like um, I'll tell you a short story or a quick story about like, you know, I was reading for a contest and it was my son's um, baseball summer camp that I had to sit around for. And every script that I read at the park, I passed on. It was crazy. And every script that I read at home, I liked. And so after a while, I thought, I wonder, I was like, I wonder what is, what's going on? I was, was I distracted? Was I, you know, and, and I went back and reread some of those scripts that I passed on and it was something about that park because I, I, I had to rechange all my scores. I had to reread some of these scripts. And so that with that, the whole point of that story though, is that it's like, it's so dependent on who's reading it, how I'm reading it, what frame of mind I'm in, you know? Um, that's why you could write an amazing script and not get, you know, get passed up so quickly. Um, in terms of the other like blacklist and other, those kind of comp, like those kind of websites, I've, I've never, those came after I've kind of already, made uh, my, my living as, as a writer. So I never really participated in those in those places. Um, but I do think it's weird that you have to pay to kind of get your scripts up that no one's gonna read. Like like the most important to read, people read it, like producers and executives, they're not, I'm not, they're not trolling blacklist looking for no. you know, amazing scripts. So I don't, I don't necessarily think that that's the best place to, to do it, but you know, what do I know? And the Substack model is really just a new form of self-publishing that has more optionality because Say I, I, I publish on my Substack several things like film reviews, short film scripts, short stories, and even some of the art I do. I have an obsession with Funkos and I like to do a little bit of art with them for fun. And I always publish it like anybody can have access to it. But if you want to get a paid subscription, just a comment, that's the type of options it gives you to engage. I mean, I don't know how you feel about mainstream media, but a lot of journalists have, that have left mainstream media jobs have gravitated towards pub. Substack, yeah. like a lot of the NBA writers, right? There, uh, like someone like uh, Matt Taibbi, who who I greatly admire. He he makes his living off Substack. Yeah. So does someone like Chris Hedges, or even someone more famous from the New York Times. I don't rena- remember her name. God, Barry Weiss. She gravitated towards Substack, and she makes a living from that, as opposed to working for the New York Times because of the more uh, how mainstream media has become much more biased yeah no i mean i I think that the challenge is always how how do you how do you monetize your work and what's the best way to do so if you have enough fans you can monetize it in ways that are different than if you have no fans at all well that's definitely the more positive side of social media i see every time i publish an article on substack or do a podcast episode i'd i still have social media platforms but i ghost post i just post it and if somebody sees it and a lot of people say that's it because, as I mentioned, I do feel that there's still a lot of toxicity in social media that 
if you get too engaged in it, it becomes almost inevitable that you inherit some of the toxicity I mentioned. Yeah. I mean, one of the, what, uh, one of my favorite stories from, you know, when I, when I talked to my son about kind of haters and people sending you hate mail or leaving bad comments, I was, uh, I was speaking at, um, a university in New York and, um, like I was pulling up a YouTube of one of my, of a video interview or something of me. And when I pulled it up on the, on my computer and projected it, the first thing I said was like, F you Koji, you're, you're a racist. And then they use the J, the J Jap word. Right. And it was on the screen for everyone to see it. I just remember being like, oh yeah, this is why I don't read any of these comments. You know, cause like the first thing I see is a super negative comment that came out of the blue. I didn't even know this person. Um, so I, I always think it's, it's, you know, there, there's a lot of toxic, uh, there's a lot of, uh, toxicity, you know, and this is why like, you know, one of the things I do with my son, um, every year, me and my son try to do one thing that's, you know, that we change our, our approach and we think about life and we think about how to be better human beings. And last year, one of the things I did was I'm only leaving positive comments about everything. I, anything, if I don't have a positive comment, I don't leave it. Um, so like on Yelp, I do, I was doing positive comments about everything I visited, you know, anything online, it was just positive. I'm not like trolling people. So I'm not a big troll or anything, but I was trying to just be, everything was positive and it was just very refreshing to, to try to think of like, you know, if I go to a restaurant that I didn't love, but didn't hate, I leave a positive comment about what I did love and focusing on the things I did love about it. And it did make a huge difference the way I saw the world. What do you feel about the way even the way comments are being now how commentary is being applied is being weaponized now because the fact that even the idea of being accused that it's very easy to accuse someone of being racist or even a positive comment can be weaponized. I'm, I guess the uh, decent example is like I was watching a few weeks ago a clip of the Batman and I I wrote a comment that had the word the F word in it, but not in a derogatory way of attacking anybody. It's more like more like uh, saying penguin you are fucked just for fun and then youtube censored it and yeah uh, what do you feel about this type of censorship in in a multitude of areas of media because i feel sometimes that even with storytellers or screenwriters they have to, or filmmakers they have to be careful of the types of topics that they explore or to what degree they explore yeah. them. well i wrote for china for a while and so that is like true 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 censorship in ways that mm -hmm. like i could never even imagine approaching here um, with that being said though like my podcast the unofficial official story you know we take we take a look at all these different things and one of my videos got got flagged um you know we we, we basically look at like the paranormal and true crime and conspiracies and we like come up with our own stories we make up our own stories like it's, mm -hmm. it's satire right it's it's for comedy uh, but my 9-11 episode got kicked off of all the platforms because they're saying that I'm pushing a false narrative, false conspiracies about, you know, these things. And I even complained to them. I'm like, this is satire. Like, but, but the, the, the fact is that a lot of these, a lot of these social media companies and other companies are using algorithms to, to block or to stop things. And they're not understanding the nuance or, you know, they're not understanding like, like the real things. Like I go on YouTube and I could watch, like, I could watch Nazis, you know, like clear Nazis doing stuff. But my video that's satire about 9-11 is, is taken off and it kind of, it blows my mind sometimes. And, and smarter people who spend a lot of time on YouTube are able to get around the, you know, the algorithms, but, uh, but, you know, I'm not, I don't spend that much time on it. So I don't really care. Yeah. I, I guess a perfect example of this is Joe Rogan how every episode of his podcast on Spotify has like a COVID label on it just because he's discussed his own speculation on vaccines. And I just, find that to be fundamentally absurd and uh, i don't know i just look at i look at that and it's it just 
when you look at the way these algorithms are even designed, the coders and programmers, there's something cultural about it because I think cancel culture is a new cultural phenomenon that is really toxic and even it borders on something totalitarian, which alarms me at times because the idea that, uh, I don't know, what did Dave Chappelle, I think Dave Chappelle had a situation where his special was almost taken off Netflix because some employees were threatening to leave the company. Yeah, I remember that. And uh, do you often worry about that? I mean, yeah, you, I think you answered that question. If you worry about that every time you work on a project. Well, you do. I mean, I have to give consideration about what's going on in the public, you know, scripts that um, like that, that I've written in the past, I have to make sure that it doesn't, it doesn't hit any of the things that, that you could, um, that, that would, that would cause a stir like that. Um, uh, do you, it is interesting though. Like I look back at like, uh, I recently rewatched Idiocracy. Oh, they and mentioned that in this podcast. I haven't seen it yet. I want to. I rewatched that and I loved it as a kid. I, I like, it's a, it's a great plot. It's a great idea. But then when I rewatched it, I was like, every joke is about being, is, is just, you know, calling somebody fag or every joke was about like, you know, like women. And I was like, man, like they, they had such a great opportunity. This is a great thing. And then they just blew it by making like taking this, the, you know, like they were taking the lowest hanging fruit and trying to make jokes out of that when it was like such a great and wonderful idea. You know, the idea that like we're becoming stupider because the stupid people are, are reproducing more than the smart people until the whole world is st only stupid people, filled with stupid people. Like that's a great concept. And you ruined it by just making it all about, you know, these stupid jokes that that are so low hanging fruit that like you're not you're missing the entire thing. So I, I think when, when I think a lot about cancel culture, I think a lot about, you know, we can be smarter then you know we can make better jokes we can be we can tell better stories and and sometimes like you know like in the past if you, you like just using the n-word was so shocking but how about we find ways to like make you know similar jokes about you know observations about the world and just try to find ways to do it in ways that make us think instead of make us wanting to like you know like like just saying like just trying to be shocking it's kind of like what you were saying about horror movies like one of the problems with horror movies for a while is like they're just making torture porn Right. Like for a long time, it was just like, OK, well, how can we kill people and just torture them on screen for as long as possible and not get not get an NC-17 rating? Right. Like that was stupid. I don't the need to rating see system is stupid. Yeah. What? The rating yeah. system the rating and the way functions yeah. is absurd. I mean, yeah. yeah, I know that there used to be just two ratings, PG and R. And uh, I brought up in my last interview that I don't know if it's a true story. I I'll trust Quentin Tarantino's judgment that Martin Scorsese, that he faced the risk of having taxi driver receive either an, a rated X or NC-17 rating. And all he, and the only way he could prevent that was because he manipulated the color distillation in the final shootout sequence. He basically manipulated how the color, re, how red, the red in the blood was, basically. Slight, just slightly. And that defined whether he would get an R or NC-17 or X rating. Interesting. Yeah, I don't understand sometimes how things get rated. It's always, it kind of blows my mind. I've watched, you know, things with my son that, that I think are like inappropriate that somehow get lower ratings. And I've watched things that I thought were uh, the opposite as well. Look at Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. First 10 minutes is, is full of, well, I wouldn't say it's full of gore, but it's got more gore that you would ever see, you would rarely see in a PG movie. And isn't Jaws PG? Um, it might be, I don't remember. Yeah. 
Well, either way, the violence in those films is beyond anything you see in a, in a PG film of today. And just the way that it's framed, just the way of how it's determined is absurd. And uh, I guess that just makes me more pessimistic sometimes about how, how divisive we've become. And I'm curious as to what are your thoughts on this sense of divisiveness as a result of cancel culture? What do you think has caused it? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think there's a there's a lot stronger voice now. Everyone has a stronger voice because of social media. People could comment, people could say, people have people have a network of people that they could talk to. That's different than before. Before, if you had a complaint, there was no one to talk to really about it. I mean, you could call the studio or something, or you could call somebody in the newspaper, but it was so limited. But now we all have like a audience, so everyone has an audience now, and it kind of explodes that way. Yeah, and even when they they do find a boogeyman, it's usually the person behind that platform at times to a degree where even the animosity focused on them is it borders on an absurdity where they're they're painted as though they're the devil. I mean, I remember when Mark Zuckerberg was being heckled in Congress for just for the Cambridge, for Cambridge Analytica, and I mean, I don't see him as a malicious person. I see him as a person who just didn't foresee what Facebook would turn into. Yeah. I mean, if, if people are looking for a boogeyman, then, you know, it's most people, power. yeah, most people don't, most people don't want to become a boogeyman in the beginning. It's like, right. Uh, you know, a good villain, the way to write a good villain is that they never see themselves as a bad guy. The villain, the best villains are the ones that see themselves as heroes. Like I think Thanos is a good example of that, who he, he's trying to save the universe, right? He's just going about it in a kind of a bad way, obviously, but he, he's a hero. What he's doing is heroic. We just don't see it that way. It was interesting for Infinity War to tell it from his perspective, which is rare for, and which I guess that would have been a risky move from the framework of a studio executive looking at a superhero film, because to tell this perspective of a, of a superhero film from the, the uh, viewpoint of a villain, especially one that's doing, basically committing uh, a form of eugenics genocide, that's just, that's never been done. And I don't know if you can replicate that. Well, you know, to me, one of the things, one of the reasons why the first MCU uh, series was successful is because they did take risks. You know, um, I wish Star Wars would take more risks. I, I, you know, I, I think that, like, that's the way that those studios will continue to be able to make great movies is by taking risks. In and you don't feel that, Star yeah. Wars. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. And you don't feel Star Wars is taking a risk now. I think the only risk they took was that one. Uh, what is it called? The one where it was between Episode Three and Four. Um, Last Jedi. No. No, it's the one where like uh, they had to get the the ship plan, the Death Star plans. What was that called? Um, a New Hope. No, no. Um, it was like it's a one-off one where everybody dies. Ah, I know which one you're talking about. No, 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 Rogue, Rogue One. Rogue One. Rogue One. Yeah, like that was like because it's because like everyone dies in the story. You know, they're not trying to make a hero. They're just trying to tell like a very specific story. And it was it was like to me that's like the best. Star Wars I've ever seen because they were willing to take a risk and do something new and try, you know, like, and everyone dies. Like I, same thing with Marvel, like in uh, infinity wars, they, they did a good job of trying to tell a story differently. People died, right. Even though they might've come back the next episode, but or next movie, but it's still interesting, yeah. you know? Yeah. But even the marketing itself takes a, like kind of demystifies that because I remember when I saw black Panther, as much as I enjoyed the film, 
I didn't, I mean, once you, if you show a trailer for Infinity War that showcases the character that's in Black Panther, you automatically get the sense that he's not going to die in that movie. And it's, it's just fascinating. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, the, the problem with most movies now, and you know, when, especially when my son was little and sat on my lap in in movie theaters, I could tell him what's going to happen the next couple minutes just because the way structure is i'd be like in black panther i remember sitting with my son when black panther dies hopefully that's not a spoiler um when he dies like but he doesn't really die you know the first thing i like my son started crying and i said don't worry he's not dead you know like you just you just know he's not dead because of the way storytelling is now and then obviously he comes back alive and my son was super happy but like you know i could i could sit there if i wanted to and tell him like the next beat of the movie, the next thing that's going to happen, the next thing that's going to happen, the next thing that's going to happen. And that's when superhero movies or these tentpole movies go wrong is that, you know, there is no creativity. There is no, there's nothing there. I, I, I think that you could be, you could write a romantic comedy, a formulaic romantic comedy and be creative. You could write a, you could write a superhero movie and be creative. You know, you could do things that are different. You could push the envelope. You can make great stories and make great characters. And I think that, um, I think sometimes these executives are, are they, they're not willing to do that. I think that's when those movies fail, right? No, look at their prime examples of even regular movies being marketed in a way where it kind of spoils the major elements. I remember watching this YouTube critics, Chris Stuckman, talking about how so many film, there, so many film trailers basically showed the last image. And even though not everybody's going to make the, make the conclusion that's the final scene of the film, it does kind of ruin it, especially when there's a great deal of focus put on it. And two examples I took from that was the ending of Castaway and how the trailer of the film, I didn't know this until watching this video, that Castaway, the trailer, has the last scene of the film in the trailer. And I guess The Amazing Spider-Man too, but that film was a, had its reputation for so many other elements. I mean, Castaway is a, very, is a film that I don't think could be made today. Yeah, well, not, not the way it was made, yeah, for sure. No, you could make it just different and smaller probably yeah well i don't think it could get any smaller than it was there because it was just tom hanks on an island well in terms of production smaller sorry no i mean it could probably i mean i could see it as an independent film yeah that's what i mean like production wise would be much smaller not like necessarily like yeah character or, or location wise are there any other genres that you've wanted that you have are there any particular genres you haven't worked on but you'd like to eventually tackle um i can't say i, I can't say that uh i love to i just love writing in general um so whenever a project comes to me i would love to write it you know one of the things that is uh like i like to demystify in terms of being a professional screenwriter is that most of my work is other people's stuff is other people's ideas because uh, that's frankly who's going to pay me right most if i come up with my own idea it's really hard to make money because i gotta either sell it I got to make, find funding for it and make the movie, or I got to sell it. Right. And those two things are, they're a crapshoot and they're very difficult, even with somebody with experience and, and credits. Um, so most of what I do is other people's stuff. So if, if a person approaches me with a, you know, with something that's new and different and interesting, then I'm definitely willing to do it. So that's a long way of answering your question. Sorry. <laughs> and don't worry about it. I mean, I don't know if, if uh, I mean, I guess on a final note, I'd like to ask, if, uh, what advice would you give to anybody who wants to get into screenwriting? The, you know, there's, there's two, two pieces of advice I always give. One is you've got to stop talking about writing and write. 
Um, a lot of people spend all their time talking about being a writer and writing and, you know, this advice could be for anything creative, but you know, that's, that's a big thing. And then the other thing is that you have to start treating screenwriting like a job. Um, so my, my philosophy is always this, or sorry, let me say the biggest difference between a professional writer and amateur writer is this, a professional writer writes every day an amateur writer writes when they're inspired. Um, so I've trained myself that when I open my computer, I'm inspired. I close my computer. I cease to be inspired. I open my computer, I'd be inspired. I close my computer, I cease to be inspired. And a lot of people say, how can you train yourself to be inspired? And I say, well, if you worked at a at McDonald's and your boss told you to flip a burger and you said, I can't flip a burger, I'm not inspired to flip a burger today, you're out of the job pretty quick. And you gotta treat screenwriting or writing in general like that, like it's a job and that you gotta just do it constantly. So I, you know, even though I might not be in, like inspired like you and write like, not you personally, but anybody who's listening, uh, I've you know, never like, believed in that myth that you have to only write when you're inspired. Yeah, but but you you'd be surprised. So many people believe that. Like you're only like I have to wait for some kind of magical inspiration to happen. But I say I'm inspired when I write, and then when I cease to write, I'm not inspired anymore. This is why I don't believe in writer's block. I don't believe in any of that stuff because it's just a job. I just write when I write, and I don't write when I don't write. I don't know how I feel about the idea of writer's block, but for, for me, when I approach it, it's like I write in multitude in a multitude of areas, screenwriting, short stories, poetry, and I just treat it like this. Even when I hit a block, I just I just move on to another thing because I, I remember David O. Russell once saying that regarding depression, he says, I can't afford to be depressed. And I say, it like with myself, I can't afford writer's block yeah. because then it'll lead to depression and I'll become insane. And I guess that's just how I avoid it. Wow. I'm constantly writing something one way or the other, even journaling just to keep some level of my sanity. And uh, well, I guess I wanted to ask since I'm going to be finishing up, um, where can people go to learn more about you? I mean, in terms of, because you did mention also you had a podcast and that surprised yeah. me. Um, so definitely um, for me personally, you could go to www.koji, K-O-G-I, Stephen with a V, Sakai, mm -hmm. S-A-K-A-I.com. It has all my content. You can see everything. It has all the links to all the different places. Um, my podcast, The Unofficial Official Story, you could go to the, our website, which is the title, or you can find us on all major podcast platforms. Okay. Well, Koji, I really I want to appreciate you giving me the time of your day to do this and uh I'll be sure to include all your contact information in the description for this episode. And I'll certainly share this podcast with you once I publish it. And uh, I wanted to ask on a, on a side note is if, uh, since you mentioned you look at other people's scripts, so would you mind if I ever sent you one of a script I wrote, a feature length I wrote a while ago? I'd be, I'd be happy to look at anything you send me. So you know, it is a horror film. So maybe it's the kind of thing that'll get you excited. Yeah, then definitely. I love, I love reading people's stuff. It helps me become a better writer and teacher as well. Okay. Well, again, Koji, I really appreciate it. I'll be sure to share the podcast with you as well as other links tied to it. And uh, again, thank you. And sorry, we had the little mismatch earlier with the timing of the meeting. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for, you know, I love talking about writing and I appreciate any platform where I could talk about it. Oh yeah. And if you ever want to, if you ever want to be on this podcast again, just send me an email. All right. Okay. We'll do. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.